Conducting a death investigation in a combat environment is a dangerous business, not only for the agents, but also for the Marines who provide the overwatch protection while they conduct what was called the combat crime scene. Each member has specific duties, from documentation with video or photo to collection and documentation of evidence. On May 7, 2006, NCIS was called to investigate after Iraqi villagers reported a shooting which occurred back in April. Jim Connolly would lead the NCIS agent Hamdaniya to investigate as they approached the area the convoy that was taken to the scene was hit by an IED, showing exactly how dangerous conducting a crime scene investigation or a death investigation in a combat environment can be. Connolly and his team were trained very well at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center on a technique called the combat crime scene. Connolly and his team, they walked through the scene. The lead perpetrator would lead them through the crime scene. He explained his actions along with other Marines there was of self-defense, and that the, the Iraqi that they killed was caught digging a hole to plant an IED. Within a month, the Marine and six others, along with a Navy corpsman, would be charged with murder. Jim Conley was the kind of agent that you could depend upon. Jim spent most of his career in Bremerton, Washington, but he was counted on many times to volunteer for duty aboard the USS Nimitz, and he did 537 days at sea. It's an amazing amount of time at sea. And many agents will tell you who have been afloat that sometimes you weren't an agent afloat for like you were the agent adrift. But Jim did a fantastic job, and you'll hear some of his stories from the sea today. You'll also hear about the Hondania investigation which is just fascinating. Seven Marines, one Navy corpsman accused of murder. Jim was counted on in more ways than one. He would be a member of the Federal Drug Task Force, working cases in the Navy. When we conduct drug investigations, many times we're not talking about kilos, we're talking about ounces, which can cause a critical problem on a ship where there's an abuse of drugs. That story and more today on NCIS Reports from the Field with Special Agent Jim Conley. All right, it's a real pleasure to have Jim Conley join us tonight uh, to talk about his career with NCIS, NIS, and then NCIS. Uh, he began his career in uh, 1987. Is that right, Jim? Yeah. Um, he was an agent, obviously, during the Telehook and the Iowa investigations that changed kind of the landscape of what we were as an agency. And then late in his career, uh, he was um, a case agent on a huge case. Uh, out of Iraq and Hamdania, and we're going to talk, talk about that, some really good stories. But, Jim, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, joining us tonight. You bet. Thank you for having me. Hey, man, so uh, so you, so you, you, are you originally from the Northwest? Um, is that, you've been, been there your whole life? Pretty much. I uh, was born in Tacoma. My parents went back to Montana, where my dad was originally from. And then when I came back, uh, in this area when I was in first grade and lived here pretty much ever since. I went to South Kitsap High School, uh, graduated as football and track. Uh, I don't want to say star, but I got a scholarship for, for both football and track. I was a shot discus thrower and then a center um, on, on our team. And um, I went to junior college and I knew, I knew in, Eighth grade, I wanted to be in law enforcement. Uh, you know, you take that, I forget that test you take in eighth grade. <laughs> and um, law enforcement was number one and, and uh, construction and farming were the, the other three choice, <laughs> two choices. And I always thought it'd be cool to be able to drive fast, break laws and arrest people when I was in eighth grade. And uh, so I always wanted to be involved in law enforcement. Uh, Perfect time. Yeah, and, you know, like Dragnet, I used to 
never miss an episode of Dragnet. It's a great uh, show, wasn't it? I mean, Dra- Dra- Adam Twelve, Dragnet, good shows. Yeah, right? Car Fifty Four, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> good stuff, man. You know, yeah. we were, it, it's good things we had shows like that. You know, like uh, SWAT and you know all those shows in the seventies that really kind of groomed all of us to be in law enforcement. You know, we hadn't gotten to Miami Vice yet because we, you know, it'd be in the eighties, but. I yeah. mean, the 70s shows, it was like it was all procedural, whereas it became style in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Colombo was probably one of my favorite. I kind of yeah. always pictured myself as Colombo. Like, you know, I, I don't come across maybe as the smartest guy out there, but in the end, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always always asking those what everybody thinks are dumb questions, but they're they're genius at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. well, it's your always laying framework for later on, you know. <laughs> That's good stuff, man. So you you got a uh, football scholarship, track scholarship to what college? Well, initially, you know, I hate to say this, when I was in high school, I I did I wasn't into school. I was yeah. kind of playing sports and hanging out with the buds and the girls, and and uh, so I didn't really pay attention to my grades. I got passing grades. I never got anything lower than a C, but I didn't take the rank classes. You know, I took yep. one E and and that sounds like my career. And all the required classes I needed to take for graduation, but nothing for college. And I always thought if I don't uh, get a scholarship, this is my senior year, then I'm going into the Marine Corps. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then, uh, Lord you know, I, I got a, I had uh, four scholarships. Uh, they were junior college. Uh, I had, uh, and I ended up, I, I told I feel bad because I was I told the coach at Yakima Community College that I was going to go there and um, I was loved my visit there and and everything and the team and uh, then I got home and it was like how are my parents going to pay for for this because they're paying my tuition and the books but there's nothing about room and board you know yeah sure and my dad was a carpenter and you know kind of in the winter months it gets sometimes you know there's no work and uh it's like you know i can't put that burden on my parents so i decided to go to olympic college which was in Bremerton, which was 15 minutes from my house so it was like uh, i decided there and, and went there played football and did track and then uh went on to central and did football and track there and got my degree in uh law and justice very nice man so um, what, how did you find out about NIS at the time? Well, um, I was, uh, working as a gate guard at PSNS, Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. And it was one of the first jobs I got, uh, out of college. And, um, uh, my father-in-law, who was a quality assurance, um, engineer at Keyport. Um, I wasn't married yet, but I'd been dating his wife. Or his daughter for uh, about four years at this time. He says, "Hey, you ought to go apply with NIS." And I think probably what he had was uh, a briefing or something. And uh, so I go, "What is NIS?" You know. <laughs> so I uh, and then when I was a gate guard, they the administration. My uh, Don Owens was his name. Uh, he. Uh, he mentioned, oh, you're going to be a gate guard for less than a year and NCIS or NIS is going to pick you up. Mm-hmm. And again, I was like, what's NIS? I've never heard of it. <laughs> so, when my father, 
my father-in-law mentioned that to me. And then I, I reached out to NCIS and uh, Chuck Falk. I don't know if you know Chuck. He was in the office at Bremerton. I think he was the ASAC. Anyway, I went down there and knocked on the door. He was the only one there. And uh, so I'm nervous, you know, and I'm just at this time, I just recently married and I got my wedding ring. I remember playing with my wedding ring, spinning it like this, you know, and pulling off and flipping it, you know. And he goes, yep. You're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> Uh, after a short talk, and this is probably in 1986, uh, he walked me around to the offices at Bremerton, and you know I saw the University of Maryland, the University of California, and all these big schools diplomas on the walls. And then I went to Central Washington, a little cold opportunity, <laughs> school, and I thought he's going to smoke up my ass. <laughs> so. You know, I, you know, they're not going to want some podunk guy, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he told me to fill out that application for whatever. Right, right. So about six months later, I met this guy. Uh, and I come to find out he was a snitch or a source for NCIS. <laughs> and he, he did some busts uh, you know, on some other gate guards. But you know, I didn't know it. It was before I got there. But anyway... Mm -hmm. Um, he and I became friends, and because uh, he wanted to be in law enforcement too. And, um, anyway, his first name was Mitch. Anyway, so you know, I told my story and all that. And then uh, one day, these two guys drove up to the gate, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he's one of the guys that died in the Philippines. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. And. Um. Uh, Anyway, he, he talks and he says, hey, we're hired. You need to, you need to apply. We, we hear you have a degree and all that. And I said, well, I went to Podunk University. And he said, well, I went to Northeast Central Connecticut, you know. <laughs> and so I okay, well, I guess they do hire people with small, you know, small universities. Because mm -hmm. I swear to God, when I went through the NISOP, there was major universities, you know, Florida State <laughs> yeah. and, and, and uh, Anyway, so then about a half hour later, I get a call from Larry Valentis. And uh, he goes, hey, I hear you have a degree and you need to apply with NCIS. <laughs> Come down here. I want to talk to you. So I, I got after my shift. I walked down there and, and spoke to Larry. And um, six months later, I was hired by uh, NCIS. I'm going to say this. I brown nose the hell out of Larry. I took him hunting. I took him fishing because I wanted to be a uh, Oh my gosh, that's great. Larry and I went elk hunting. We went deer hunting. We went salmon fishing. And uh, uh, and then, uh, so I, I think he helped push my paperwork through. Plus, the bonus was. I lived in the Bremerton, Port Orchard area all pretty much all my life. So as far as the background, they had to go to Allensburg, where my college was, to get, you know, talk to my pr professors or whatever. That was about the extent of the road trip they had. And then I worked two summers in the oil field in Montana with my uncle. And all that. Uh -huh. They had to go to Quendine, Montana, or send somebody out there. But it was relatively easy background. In fact, there wasn't a whole lot. I lived at home still, so there wasn't. You know, roommates or anything like that. So you must have been one of the last classes in 1987 because that was the last year we were hiring until 1989. I went on a two-year 
a hiring uh, place, right? I hired, it was February of 87 when I uh, got hired and uh, went to Flexi, February 2nd. Okay. And uh, so I, it was, uh, I know we, there was a couple of was after that. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I was, I was in the interview process during that time and uh, kind of same thing. And I think it was, um, it must have been, yeah, it must have been the uh, May of 87 where I'd gotten my physical and everything was good to go. And then I got a call like in July, hey, we're in a hiring freeze. Uh, yeah. It's going to be, so I continued working in my, in my private job. But it was it was literally like eighty nine when I I got hired. So, was, so you got you got to take people hunting and fishing, man. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I should have done that with Dave Swindle up in uh, up in Memphis, who, who was interviewing me, and I should have done that with him and James Reed and all those guys, and said, "Hey, you know, what do I got to do to get a job here? Like, you know, quick lickety split. What what do I got to do?" And uh, uh, it was it was great, it, but it was I'm glad I finally got hired. But anyway, so you get hired in eighty seven. What's your first office? Yuma, Arizona. I spent uh, three and a half years there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, a small office. Uh, I had a rough first year. Uh, I was supposed to be trained by a gunny sergeant uh, in the Marine Corps who could care less about me. Uh, and um, in fact, when we, my first dope operation, uh, she she was assigned to teach me how to, how NIST buys go. Well, she jumps out of my, our car, jumps into the sheriff's car and says, go find a spot and <laughs> sit. That was the training I got from her. Anyway, long story short, I learned a lot. There were some good people there. Uh, Fern McDonald uh, was the sack. Um, I made the fatal mistake with him. I think it was a couple of weeks after I got up out of the academy and we, we used to, I used to go in his office and eat lunch and we talked, you know, and stuff. And, and I told him, you know, I've never worked a rape case. I don't know how I do ask me uh, a female about a rape case and what happened and stuff. And he says, time off. He says, get your shit together. We're going down to the mall and you're going to interview women. <laughs> and you're going to have to come up for a reason why you're interviewing women. And we're going to do that till you get 10 women you talk to. Wow. That's an interesting training session. Huh? That's an interesting training session. Yeah. We went down and, and of course I had to come up with some reason why I was talking to this woman. And of course I, I did that. Well, I'm from cable company. We're looking like we're, we want to come into the <laughs> Arizona and want to, you know, I want to talk to you about your cable service and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, Fern was good. He, he, he was uh, a good sack. He had some patience with me. And uh, there was a couple times he threw me out of his office. He'd get pissed off. And, uh, but um, it was a good experience. I was there for a little over three years. And uh, work with guys like BJ Yankowski. Yeah, BJ was there. He was the ASAC initially was Ron Fox who passed away. And he was, to be honest with you, he probably mentored me the most that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, we became good friends. Um, I'm still friends with his wife. She was in Vegas. Yeah. And uh, uh, he just took me under his wing and um, helped me a lot. Now, he was one of these real intellectual guys uh-huh. and not 
streetwise, if you know what I mean. <laughs> he was he worked for the CIA before he came to us. Oh wow! And uh, but he just calmed me down and, and you know kind of kept me in the lane, if you know what I mean. And um, so then uh, my last year, <laughs> I never wanted to do FCI, mm-hmm. right? I had no interest in FCI. I never read a spy novel in my life. <laughs> so uh, I'm walking down the hallway and Mac goes, hey, I just got a call from San Diego and I got to put someone in the FCI school at headquarters and you're going. And I said, Mac, <laughs> I've never read a spy novel. I, I couldn't tell you anything about Walker or anything like that other than, you know, what we knew. And uh, he says, I don't care. You're going. So I went to a four-week course and headquarters came back and it was at headquarters. I went up to 25 and um, said, I want to get the hell out of Yuma. You know, my wife didn't care for it. Uh, And um, so I talked to um, Cabello. Cabello? Is that Cabello? Yeah. And he, and I talked about floats because when I was in Yuma, it was my second year. Um, the sack up at Bremerton, where he was and Larry were still there, and they said, "Hey, we have the Nimitz available for a day office, and I think you'd you'd be great for that." So uh, when I went to FCI school, I was pushing for that. Right. And of course, when Cabela contacted Mac, Mac goes, "He's got a marine base. He knows nothing about Navy. He needs another year in place." And I'm thinking. How am I going to learn the Navy at a Marine base? You know? But anyway, uh, I didn't get it. I didn't get the day office. Um, I went to Rick James. I don't know if you know Rick James. Yep, sure uh, enough. He was uh, Brian McKee's uh, good friend. And um, so, anyway, the Nimitz thing came up and I put in for it. I called Cabello again. And when uh, Rick was coming off, there was a an opening and I put in for it. Well, I got it. Hmm. Right. So um and I wanted to get back to the Northwest because my mom uh was having health issues. She was a diabetic and I came home for Christmas and she had gangrene in her foot and, and I had to pick her up. She wasn't a full doctor and I literally picked her up and said you're going to the doctor and that day they cut off half her foot and it was just like she from there on she was kind of like was going south. So I wanted to get back home. And the Nimitz was the best avenue because it was homeported in Bremerton. And uh, so I I got the Nimitz and then the orders came. And of course, you got to negotiate with your sack on what day you're going to leave. Right. So um, it had in their report between May 1st and May 30th, somewhere in that time. So I went to Mac and I said, OK, how about May 1st? And he said, no, how about May 30th? Well, anyway, we ended up negotiating when I'd leave like on May 20th. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So I called Rick James up, not knowing that he and McKee are buds, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I didn't know him from Adam. And, I, sure, you know, sure. in Yuma, you know, never met McKee either. Sure. And am I taking too long? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing great, man. And, and so uh, I called James up and I said, hey, the sap here won't let me go until the 20th of uh, May. And he goes, that's bullshit. The ship's going to see 
on the fourth for a seat a day trial, a couple days to test the screws out. You need to be there. We do a case transfer. And I said, well, I, I can't do that. That's where, you know, he's the boss and he, that's, he's telling me that's where I can go. Less than an hour later, the RDO of San Diego called Mac and says he's going to be in uh, Yuma or in Bremerton by before the fourth. Wow. And Mac comes down to my office, you traitor, you, he starts yelling and screaming at me that I called someone at headquarters or something. I said, Mac, I, I called the guy just to let him know when I'm coming to the to the ship, and I don't know who he is and who he's connected with, and blah blah blah. But he was yelling and screaming, and you know, spit was coming out of his mouth. He was so pissed off, and, and it was like, boom. Anyway, I ended up in the Northwest, and then the turnover was, "Hey, I can't go to sea. You're going to have to go." I didn't even know how to find the ship. <laughs> That's the way it goes. That's the way it went back in those days on ships. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, cheers. Yeah, I, I. I I, he took me in the ship one time to meet the CO. We went up to the CO, and then he showed me the stateroom, right? So then yep. I got to bring my stuff on board to get ready to go to sea for two or three days, whatever it was. So I don't know how to get to my stateroom. So, <laughs> oh, I get to the brown. I, there's an MA saying, hey, I need to talk to someone in the MA. They need to take me to my stateroom. So I don't know how to get there. <laughs> so then I get there, right? And I forgot the damn key. To the state, oh my god, which goodness. was in my at my father in law's house. So I had to call, I had to leave ship, walk outside the base, and get and then he brought the key down. And I got there, but anyway, long story short, I did the workups and then the Westpac. And in the Westpac, I, I, my one of the best people I've ever worked with, Michael Marks. I don't know if you know Mike Marks. Oh, yeah, uh, Mike Marks, well, well, he was in my basic class, great guy, one of the best guys I've ever worked with ever. Smart uh, guy. Very trustworthy. Yeah. Uh, I was senior to him. I did the crim. He did the FCI. But when shit needed to get done, we helped each other. We, and in six months, we shared the same. Our state room was our office. Yeah. So we had no separation. And then when we had port calls, we hung up. Mm -hmm. Not one time did we ever argue. Not one time. And uh, he's just a stellar of a man. And I uh, uh, can't say enough about him. And so I did workups in the Westpac. And then uh, I came off of that because towards the end of my career or time on the NIST, uh, or Nimitz, I did like three or four drug cases. I mean, I, I recruited some sort, couple sources and bought stuff on the ship and cocaine and, and marijuana and what have you but anyway so i came off and then i went to the task force so to police department's task force i did that for a couple of years and then it was like they needed someone for the nimitz again to work up so i raised my hand i figured that's going to give me more time in the northwest sure. and uh so i did the nimitz again workups so total I have 537 days of sea time on the Nimitz uh, away from Berlin. So you had a really good experience on the ship. I mean, because um, I, I mean, I'd have a different experience, but the Nimitz, you know, um, I met the guy that was on the Nimitz in 92. I was on the Kitty Hawk. Yeah, so your experience did. on Nimitz was a good, was a good cruise, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, 
by by time there, uh, I, I funny story re- reverting back to Yuma. It was probably my first year. Uh, I got a call from El Centro, California, about fraud, and I kept on saying, "I mean fraud." To this guy because I'd never heard of fraud before, <laughs> and I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And then yeah. uh, he goes, "No foreign object damage." I go, "What the hell is that?" And then he explained, and then I, that was my case, and I learned a lot from that because I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, and headquarters made me correct, sent it back. You know, got signed off at our office, and then they took it back. Because yeah, anyway, so Lord behold, we had a fraud case on the Nimitz, and so with that ex- case, I did. You know, a couple of years prior, I, I, you know, there was that one sailed right through. I knew the format that they wanted, you know, all the playing captain and all the crew, all on the same IA, and I know the examination and what have you. But anyway, uh, so I had a FOD case, and then uh, we had a bunch of nuclear sailors uh, go to the local press and they dubbed their face and their voices, but you could through their you know, their hand movements and how they spoke and stuff. We figured out who they were. Sure. So the Navy bounced all those people out of the, uh, out of the uh, nuclear program, which they lost big bucks because they, you know, they got bonuses and stuff. So we're at sea at the same time that this fraud uh, case, it was a reserve unit and their planes were just, you know, dropping shit all the time on flight deck. Fraud rock belts weren't being done. But anyway, as I was investigating that, then we had a portside well boat catch on fire. The captain's going, oh, sabotage, I got a sabotage on the boat, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I had a little background working on cars and stuff. So I, I got my crime scene kit and I run there and Harry Chamberlain, they sent him out with me to help me work that fraud case because um, it was six planes we were, you know, doing anyway. So I get down there and it's the Bendix spring in the start. And I don't know if you know what that is. It was protruding out this ceramic thing, which caused it to short out. And oh, wow. what happened, it was a brand new motor in this portside well boat. And, you know, it has to be in water because it sucks the water up to cool the engine. Well, it's on the side of the boat and uh, it can't get water. So it burned this brand new motor up. So anyway, I figured out what happened. It wasn't sabotage. It was just a mechanical breakdown of this uh, spring protruding through this ceramic thing that shorted out. Yeah. And uh, so I go to the XO and I tell him, uh, you know, hey, this is what happened. And he goes, you need to meet the CO. And he calls the CO right away. And the CO, we called him Sidewinder Willie because he was about five, six, and you just didn't know where he was going to come at yet. Either happy or sad or what to throw you off, you know I mean? Yeah. Um, anyway, he, I, I briefed him on it. He says, I could come down there and kiss you. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great time. I, I, I think every NIST agent, if they really want to learn yeah. how to do stuff, because you get, you know, you're 3,000, 5,000 miles away from the home port. You're making decisions that, you know, and you're expected to know the right decisions and make the right decision it was the best thing i ever did in my life yeah it taught me and, it, and i worked a lot of cases that uh you know but anyway so i did the nimitz came off again went to the drug task force uh, dave black i don't know if you know dave black i know dave very well um 
he's best one of my best buds too. And um, he and I, we bought an ounce and a half of crack cocaine off the um, Carl Vincent, and he was the um, day agent on the on the uh, Carl Vincent. And he and I teamed up, and uh, there was a group of guys from the LA area that had some cocaine brought, crack cocaine brought up. Uh, and they were going to dispute it. And uh, we broke that up. But one night, and Bremerton, we called Bremerton because we we're going to do it out in town. So you, you always call the local, say, hey, we've got this dope deal. Hey, you want to participate? Well, they said, oh, we got this $40 meth deal we're going to do. Because <laughs> well, we didn't know we were going to get a, uh, an ounce of crack by paying, you know. Um, so anyway, we go out with this agents. And, uh, and Doug Tomasa was the sack. And uh, we buy this ounce of, and we do a buy bust. And we uh, buy this ounce of crack cocaine. And we're in East Bremerton. And uh, first off, we took shotguns. And he was going, what do you need shotguns for? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the old days, you're taking shotguns? Why do you need shotguns? You know? Oh, but that was back, but Jim, that was back in the day when people like, we, you know, if you pulled out the shotguns, that was a big deal. I mean, yeah. and don't ever ask to pull out the Uzis. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. Well, and, and we're dealing with the Crips and the, and the Bloods, right? And yeah. so, um, so we do a buy bust, and Harry Chamberlain's got our suspect, just spread eagle out the middle of the road. And Doug Tomasso's like pacing back and forth, you know, and then Captain in and Dave, Dave, get in the office, and, and uh, Dave Black and I. Got him to confess, and then recruited him to source, and we went right out. But he bought us a half ounce of crack cocaine from another post group. Um, and then, uh, long story short, I have the nickname with the Burma Police Department Task Force of Pizza Man. <laughs> um, I recruited this uh, crack female. She was crack, uh, always high on crack, and she associated with the military and she associated with this group that we, Dave and I were trying to get into. Anyway, um, uh, she lived in this triplex and she was in the middle uh -huh. and she had no phone and we were supposed to meet and do a dope deal because we gave her 150 bucks to pay the, na the Navy guys that she owed money to for dope uh -huh. that she used earlier because she thought she was going to get beat up and all. So anyway, we we had no way to communicate with her other than, you know, hey, we told her, hey, we want you at this spot at this time. We'll pick you up, blah, blah, blah. Go out and do a deal. Well, she didn't show up. So Bremerton and I, uh, I said, hey, I'll dress up like a pizza guy and make a pizza delivery. And it's, you know, like 90 degrees out. And uh, the windows are all open. And uh, so I, I've got, I went to Pizza Hut. And they gave me one of their insulated things, and they gave me a pizza, car, you know, pizza cardboard thing, but no, no pizza. So I take it up there, I knock on the door, and she's got some, some guys and girls, you know, they're doing dope in there. And uh, so I knock on the door, and I said, "Hey, pizza for delivery." Is Linda Washington here? And she goes, "I ordered no damn pizza." <laughs> and then she saw me. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I ordered pizza. So she came over and I said, "Here's your pizza, you know. Here's your box, you know." And, and I said, "Hey, meet us around the corner in ten minutes." 
So then she showed up and we went out and did Oakdale. Anyway, long story short. So I got the nickname of Pete's Man because I went up this, you know, there was, she was in the middle, crack house on top, crack house on the bottom and the side. I mean, it was just a fourplex and it was just nothing but cockroaches, you know, and, and uh, dopers. And, and, and I, I volunteered to do it. And uh, anyway, long story short. So I'm still called Pizza Man with the guys that were there at that time. <laughs> Super good buddies. But anyway, so um, it did, you know, I lucked out. I was in Bremerton in the Northwest for 22 years. Uh, but I did, I did the carriers, and, and then we had that freeze where we weren't hiring anybody. The transfers weren't happening unless, yeah. you know, you got trouble or the needs of the service type thing. And mm-hmm. I always did good work. My leap hours were usually the, the top of the field office, you know, working drugs and all that. You worked, you know, the Bremerton guys didn't start till noon, and, you know, we reported to work at 7 in the morning. So, you know, I, you worked till midnight a lot of times. And so my leap, leap hours were always uh, – the high end of the, the field offices and I did work and uh, the sacks like liked me, you know, and I did wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to spend 22 years in Northwest. Plus, you know, I knew my time was probably coming short, so I volunteered to go to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then in, in 2006, uh, uh, but I want to talk about training a little bit, a little fun, that serious, but a little fun thing. So, um, I go to the training for Iraq, uh, you know, so four weeks. Yeah, sure. The, uh, the the contingency course there. Yeah. And, and of course, Larry Fuentes is the uh, uh, coordinator, of our, our yeah, yeah. which was great. I think we were in the same class, Jim. Yeah, we were. We were. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so uh, had, uh, Chuck Howard was uh, kind of the yeah, 15. We were called the Baratel team, Chuck and I, <laughs> and uh, Jim, Jim Reed. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we consider Chuck Davis the Gerald Gerald Hall team, but anyway, um, so uh, Reed was supposed to. It was supposed Fallujah. It was, it was supposed to be uh, Derek Kennedy. James Reed was going to be the SSA, and then I was going to be the lead investigator. Kyle Casey was going to be there, mm-hmm. and then uh, I think just before training was over. Um, Reed had a problem with his thyroid, or it was after, just shortly after, uh, and he couldn't go. So then I became the SSA slash lead slash whatever. Um, and Derek says, "You got the crim. I know nothing about crim. I'm FCI. I never really worked the crim case. You know, it's outside my first year or two with NCIS. And so you got it." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, Kyle Casey. Uh, he was out of Lejeune and been on like a year and a half. At the yeah. Well, his dad was a, uh, a, a physical fitness instructor at Western. Okay. I didn't know that. That's interesting. And uh, he comes up to me like the second or third week before we're done. And he says, comes up to me, goes, I don't trust, and I, I, I don't trust the other guys, but I trust you. And he says, I want my son coming back alive and helping. Yeah. And you need to make that happen. And what do you say? Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about that because, you know, I mean, it, it really, 
that's a that's a realistic that's a real a conversation of realism right there yeah you know it doesn't get any real more real than that yeah and because you don't know really what you're getting into you know i mean uh when you go over there you don't know what to really expect you know and and um i was taken back and it was like you know what i lived with that burden the whole time i was out there you know uh, kyle was was good guy uh but i always had that in the back of my mind i'm not going to make him do anything that i wouldn't do and you know if he doesn't have to go outside the wire i don't want to do it because I, I made a promise to his dad he will come back and he will yeah. be alive and, and, you know, um, anyway um, so you guys went to Fallujah. Is that where you went to? Yeah. And, and uh, first night there in Fallujah, we had get in like at two in the morning and uh, Br- Brittingham. I was relieving Brittingham. Yeah, Brian Brittingham. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, he has a hooch and so he had an extra bed in there. And uh, so I bumped in there uh, for the turnover. Mm-hmm. And that first night, the halluxes went off. Oh, wow. And you know the whole face just shook when those things went on. Yeah. And I thought, God damn, we're under attack. Yeah. My God. And Brian says, "Back to bed. That's a howitzers." But it rocks your world the first time you hear it. So anyway, we did the turnover, and then uh, you know we had a couple few cases involving uh, the Turkish truckers bringing alcohol on the base. You know, so. Stuff we were, you know, searching those, but and then the wait a minute. Guy, oh, time out. Turkish truckers bringing alcohol in the base. Yeah, it's uh, there wasn't any pilfering of alcohol, was there? Yeah, yeah. I know how that general order number one worked. <laughs> yeah, well, we went out there, did search all the vehicles in the middle of the night, and we find them, we just break them, you know. Oh, wow. And uh, anyway, so uh, you know, we had a few other cases we did, and and uh. And then the Hamadiyya case broke. And um, so then- talk about that, Hamdaniya. So how did, what was, how did you guys get notified on Hamdaniya? Uh, well, the, uh, the JAG for Fallujah came to Derek and they had a closed store. And I was kind of miffed that, hey, I'm the SSA basically for Crim and you're behind closed doors. <laughs> you know, I'm not included. And his, his name was uh, Major Harvey, real good guy. Yeah. I respect him a lot. Um, anyway, so after he leaves, Derek says, uh, you and uh, we're going to send one to see it because our compound was this. We had two trailers and then CID mm-hmm. was next. And he says, hey, there's BS that happened up in Fallujah and uh, we need, I want you to go up there. I don't want to send a junior guy. I want you to go up there and, and uh, I want to send the CID guy with me and uh, go up there and see what the hell's going on. Yeah. There. And, uh, I said, okay. And so um, uh, Steve uh, Logan, uh, who was CID at first, and I got him hired by Jess, by the way. Yeah. I almost got myself, I had some pilots with it. Oh, that's another story, but. Had some pilots on the heels get very upset with me because I got too close and you know they're they're sitting there and they're warming the blades up or whatever and they they come down when they're going around. Yep. And I got in their opinion, I got too close. You're a tall guy. You're a big guy. (laughs) I I wanted to make sure, uh, and I can't think of his name. 
because I uh, Beto came out um, and I told him, hey, we got to hire this guy. He's been right with me throughout this investigation, and he's a good guy. And he said, well, I have his uh, resume in. So I already told Steve, get your resume done, and I'm going to make sure that he gets to the director. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that made that happen. But anyway, um, so uh, how many, so me and Steve went up there. Here's one of my funny stories um, that's going to come out. Um, so to get middle of the night, we get into uh, Abu Ghraib, which is uh, the base just, and how many is just outside, probably 15, 20 minutes outside mm-hmm. the base. I didn't realize it was that close. I've been to Abu Ghraib, and I did not realize how many it was right It might have been 20, 30. I don't know. You know, you just lose track of time. Sure. Um, so we get there. And we check in, and the dispersing guy, and he says, yeah, you're going to stay up in this area, blah, blah, blah. So we figured out where we're supposed to stay, and it's they made a makeshift barracks area, and they separated with plywood. And our door was so warped from the speed that it didn't, you know, half of it was open. And it was like, how can we secure our guns? Because they, they don't want you taking guns through the chow hall or anything like that while you're on the base. And it's like, how do you secure your, your, you know, your guns and, and, you know, your notes and, and what have you, your NIST stuff that you brought or NCI stuff. Well, anyway, so we get in there and we get to bed and there's a guy right across from us. And it was probably the loudest snore I have ever heard in my life. Because <laughs> this guy is so loud. And um, so the next morning, we have a briefing with uh, the Colonel Finesse and um, to kind of lay out the game plan, what, what we're going to do and, and all that. And um, So I got, we were supposed to have an eight o'clock meeting, so I was there at 7.30 because you don't want to be late, you know? And uh, so I went into that dispersing officer and I said, listen, we're here as guests. You guys requested us an escort. Mm-hmm. If I don't get better living accommodations, I'm fucking getting the next comp. Uh, I'm going back to Fallujah. Yeah. And he goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that afternoon, we were put in the VIP. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well yeah. played, sir. I told him, I, you know, I was just 13, step seven and eight at that time. And I said, hey, I had a equivalent rank of freaking colonel. You know, but I expect to be treated like a colonel. <laughs> I was so pissed because I you, didn't see you, you, you were scared of poor Lance Corporal. He didn't know what to do. He's like, no, okay, he, he was there. He was a lieutenant. Oh, a lieutenant. Uh, was he a brown bar? Or was he a, a full lieutenant? Uh, he was a, a full lieutenant. Oh, you know what? That's even more impressive. Good for you. <laughs> I kind of went off on it. I mean, I think he was scared. But the, hey, I've got this crazy old guy. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. So, so you guys get you finally get some good, uh, good hooch to live in. Um, and yeah. were you able to set up your equipment and everything? Yeah, and then so prior to getting to the VIP. You know, he told me I have put you in the VIP, and uh, but we went out uh, and uh, finesse, brief finesse, and he said, "Hey, I want uh, um, what was he major? I think he was a major uh, Carrera. Uh, I couldn't think of his rank. He was higher, but I think it was major. 
Carrera, he, he's going to be your go-to guy. If you need anything, he's going to make it happen. Well, I said, well, I'd like to go out to the crime scene and look at the crime scene, even though, you know, almost a month after the incident. And this is all, and what happened is Haditha had occurred, and then Marine Corps got the, got kind of scolded by the press, everybody about how long they drug their feet before they called in CIS. Yeah. So as soon as what happened is this happened, and then uh, the sheik ended up coming to, you know, they had like all the sheiks in a meeting, and he went up to Colonel Finesse and then told them, hey, this isn't right, blah, blah, blah. And then Colonel Finesse got a hold, you know, the chain, called the chain. Anyway, three, four weeks later, we're notified. And so I want to go out to the crime scene and see, get a lay of the land, and then go talk to the Iraqis. And Carrera goes, well, uh, Lieutenant Fan, uh, it, you know, the people, the squad that was involved in that was his responsibility. He'd probably be one of the best guys to to talk to and be able to take us out to the crime scene and walk us through it. So you're right. Let's 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 talk to him. So we went out to the uh, the foreign, you know, the the base where the Marines were. Thinking we were just picking up Pereira. Well, we ended up picking up Hutchins too. He wanted to go. And I said, okay. And in the meantime, he gives me eight casings. Eight casings. AK 47 casings. Now there's eight, eight, seven Marines and a corpse. I always thought later on those were trophies that he was going to give if they got away with this. He was going to give out to those. I couldn't get the Egg that didn't really dig that. Uh, it was a hunch. But why eight? Why do you have eight? You know, you had eight people in your squad. Why do you have eight? Well, anyway, Hutchins wants to go. Now, Hutchins, can you explain all the players in this? Uh, yes. To, 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 to this moment? Yeah. So uh, at this time, I didn't have any suspects. I really didn't know who was in the squad. Mm -hmm. It was just, hey, there was this questionable shooting by the Iraqis. We need to go out there. So I, I don't even know who's in the squad or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, Hutchins was a sergeant, and, and then uh, uh, Thomas Trent Thomas and a, a Robert Pennington, uh, Marshall Magacala. Uh, those uh, Magacala and Thomas were both Purple Heart recipients in the Battle of Fallujah, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, Pennington was. A Lance Corporal and Jack Tyler Jackson was a Lance Corporal. Shoemate was a Lance Corporal, and that's um, Jerry Shoemate. And then uh, John Jocko was a PFC, and then you had Bacos who was uh, uh, Corbett. Okay. And maybe Corbett. And uh, I didn't, like I said, at the time, I didn't know who the players were. In fact, before we left the base, Carrera said, hey, you might want to talk to Thomas. He's going PAD, and we don't know when he's going to get back. And I said, sure, I'll talk to him. So I took a, a, a sworn statement from him, because I, I didn't suspect him at the time of anything. Uh, I didn't know anything at the time, other than there's a possibly a questionable shooting here. I don't know the Marines. So I do about a two-hour interview, handwritten statement. I think it's three or four pages long. And, uh, you know, I walked him through everything. And then uh, we go out. And we stop at that flood, we pick up a fan, and we pick up Hutchins, and we pick up Jocka. I mean, I don't know who these guys are. 
-hmm. and they're the, they're their own vehicles and they're following our convoy. So we get out to the scene, and I'm kind of just and there's this big IED hole. I mean, huge in the road. So I'm, and it's like three or four football field pasture, no fencing or nothing. And then in one corner, there's a palm tree, a big tree. So uh, Hutchins just walks up to me and he says, yeah, yeah, we were all under that tree over there. I said, well, let's walk out to that tree. And so I wanted to get a perspective of the area from the tree. Of course, I'm taking pictures and, and stuff. And, so we got to the train as we're walking out there. He says, Hey, we left all of our MREs garbage there. Don't tell Ben because he's going to be pissed off at me. I remember looking at him and said, I can care less about your MREs. <laughs> and he said, Okay. And so we walked out there. Sure enough, there's a bunch of MREs garbage and stuff out there. And so I take pictures from there. And we're probably 150 yards from this old IED hole where a one was allegedly digging to put another IED hole in. According to the after action report that I got, Van, Van had a bunch of PowerPoint presentation, everything for me at, at that time when we went out to the, the foreign base there and uh, the pod. And um, anyway, uh, so we were walking back and taking pictures and then like a dumbass. I step into the IED hole. And I'm because I'm looking around, you know, and see how far the village is and, and all that from this. And uh, Steve Wogan Jim, your ass out of that IED hole. I said, why? He said, because they like to plant IEDs in old IED holes. It's easier. And I said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing. Yeah, and probably the reason are going, who's this dumbass, you know? You don't know what you don't know. I mean, yeah, but you know, you know it. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, the first couple trips out with, with my escort that I had, because, uh, you know, at, at training, remember the 20 minute crime scene rule? Oh, yeah. You, you have 20 minutes to do a crime scene because that takes, that's how long it takes for a sniper to set up. So you always have that mind. You don't want to be in one place more than 20 minutes because you've got Marines out there. Holding the perimeter and uh, for your safety. Well, you know, the Marines weren't real happy with us because, uh, you know, we're investigating one of theirs. Yeah. And uh, I remember riding out there the first couple of times, they wouldn't even talk to me in the Humvee. It was just like, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, yep. No casual conversation. So I figured, okay, like the third time I brought a bunch of this trinkets with me and i gave up that i kind of broke the ice and i kept on telling hey i'm just here for the truth i don't think the marines did this but i have you know i'm being directed to look at this i can't believe a marine would ever do something like this um anyway so we did the crime scene and then we went up into uh the brothers and the family there was like 15, 16 kids, and, uh, you know, they all live kind of in the same area, and uh, I talked to the eldest uh, brother, and I, you know, he, he says, I'm telling you to God, frozen up on me.
know, so that's all the recorded. I said, yeah, you, all you people over here say that. <laughs> you know, hey, and, it, and hey, I'm thinking, you, God, kill us, you know. But Jim, the picture froze up right there about the time you're telling, you're just interviewing this guy and, and yeah. I didn't get that. So Okay. And he said, you know, God, you know, this is God, this is the truth, you know, whatever. And, and I said to him, you all, you, all you guys say that over here. You know, and uh, anyway, he and I be actually became, um, I talked to him a couple times. And, uh, you know, I think there was, we were, we were, I don't want to say friends, but he knew what I was, I was honestly trying to find the truth. And um, so, you know, and we, we'd spend two or three days out in the field. And then I'd go back to Fallujah to do all my paperwork. Because, yeah. you know, headquarters, they want it now. Yeah. Now, sure. now, they would be calling up. Hey, where's this IA? Where's this? What's this? What is these, this, this statement of this? And it's like, I've been out in the field for three days. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm typing these up as I'm going. You know, there's, you know, usually I had like 10 or 12 IAs to do up. And, and then, and then, um, so then, um, um, I lost my train of thought. So then it was third time there. Uh, Derek said, Hey, why don't I get Stan Garland, who was at uh, Blue Diamond, to come help you? Because, you know, Steve couldn't do NCIS work. You know, he could help sit on the interviews and stuff, but I was, you know, right, interviewing, writing. And then trying to do a report, everything. So uh, he, Derek said, "Hey, I'll get Stan to come with you." Well, we met at uh, at uh, Alba Gray, and uh, so I, I told him, "Hey, I'm going back out." He Stan will go out the wire, but he wasn't comfortable going out the wire. Uh, and you know, I don't I don't want to force anybody. If they don't want to go, I mean, if we're over there for a mission, but I understand. And I, I got kind of an adrenaline high from like, it was like my football days because your head's on a swivel, you know, yeah, and, and you know, you had a lot of adrenaline in you when you went out. And uh, so I, I decided, hey, I want to bring the Iraqis that I had interviewed that first day because they were quick interviews. I want to bring them back to Abu Ghraib where I'm not putting Marines at risk, providing criminals, and really sit down and get some. Good recorded statements, and you, you know I had to use a translator and all that. So, um, and Stan says, you know, the plan was Stan was going to uh, interview one of the other because there was three teams out in that fod assigned. He was going to interview um, one of the other squads that were out that was out there while I was out getting the Iraqis and bringing them back, and and uh, so. I go out and I hear all this commotion, and um, and it's the oldest brother, and it was a couple, the oldest kids, and one of the other uh, awads. He had like four or five brothers, but one of the other brothers. Um, and I hear this commotion. If you're going to kill me, kill me now, because the Marines were putting the the masks over their heads because we're going to basically don't want them to see logistics, right? So I hear this, and so 
I I walk up to the walk to him. I pulled his mask off and I showed him my badge. And I said, "Listen, you know me. I've, I've talked to you a couple of times. I can promise you this: you're going to be back home tonight. I just want to bring you to Abu Ghraib so we don't have to worry about our Marines getting hurt or or civilians getting hurt or anything. It's just going to be easier for me and for you guys." and so forth. So he calmed down and went back to the base. Well, in the meantime, Stan had done some screening interviews of that one of the other squads, and one of the other corpsmen said, you need to talk to Bacos. And to Stan. Because uh, after that night, Bacos wasn't right. He was acting different and upset. So, you know, I'm out in the field. That wasn't part of the game plan. Part of the game plan was he was going to. So I get back, and uh, Steve is still with is helping us. And uh, so I go to Steve, what's going on? Because, you know, I just got back, and he says, he's interviewing Bacchus. And I said, well, that wasn't part of the game plan. He said, he goes, he knows, but you got to lead that Bacchus was really troubled. So, okay. But pop my head in, let Stan know I was back. And he stopped real quick and he says, Hey, I'm getting some good stuff. That's all I told him. I'm getting some good stuff. So I go back and I interview the Iraqis. And then eventually um, I got like one or two of them done. And Stan comes in and he says, They murdered me. I said, What? And he said, they murdered him. And I go, holy shit. <laughs> I, I got to go brief the colonel right now. You know, I said, uh, my instructor come out, here are these Iraqis. I don't have time to talk to them right now. Um, I have bigger things I got to do. So I went up to Finesse and I briefed him. And he says, we're going to have the whole squad. Here in your convoy, you get back to Fallujah in an hour. So get your stuff ready after I briefed you. And I couldn't get a hold of Derek. And then again, this is 10, 11 o'clock at night. I, uh, the phones were, as you know, in Iraq, they work sometimes and they don't. And I couldn't get a hold of Derek and brief him so that he could brief headquarters that we have a a murder case. And um, so eventually they were able to do some radio kind of this bouncing stuff off and eventually got to Major Harvey, uh, who then walked over to our compound and briefed there. And we got in like at two o'clock in the morning. And uh, during the whole Office of Kelly Garbo was there by this time. And, uh, and so Kyle was there, uh, Derek and Kelly, and we come around in and uh, they take the Marines down together into Fallujah and Pooches uh, down there. And then we go and brief the CO for uh, 3rd Battalion that was at Fallujah that night. And uh, of course, they want to put them all together. And they're going to put them all in the same room and let them sleep, you know, 
like this big tent. I said, no, we need them in everyone separated and not being able to talk to each other until we get a chance to talk to them. Because they're just going to get their stories together and we're not going to be able to get much out of it. So they finally agreed with that. And um, so then probably seven or seven, eight o'clock at night, we started bringing them to our office. And the initial round was we, we kind of had two man teams um, to do the preliminary interviews and then uh, interrogations. And then the second round, it was generally myself and Kelly Garble or Kyle. And I did pretty much the interrogation and they type because they're better typers. And you'll see already has its privileges, right? Yeah. And uh, and they, they would ask questions too, but their their main function was to, to witness and type and you know when you kind of get to that law you know interrogate take ask some questions where you can think of and then your your strategies and stuff. And then you know you're comparing statements what people said. Well anyway, the second round we got people to confess because we told them we told them up front thought was confessed and he laid it all out what happened. And then a couple uh penitents said he, you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the truth and blah blah blah. And he he laid out the truth of what they did, how they did it. And so what did uh, he say? What what did he say? What they what they did? Well, they were in a palm grove for six to eight hours, mm -hmm. and uh Hutchins had no ribbons for a combat, okay. never been in a fire. And so they were plotting how they could uh, get this this individual they thought may have ties to the insurgents. And they came up with different scenarios how to do it. And uh, they finally settled on the one they did. And that was just Corbin would go up into the village, knock on his door, take him, and then come up, take him down the IED hole and kill him. So uh, it was, uh, I think it was Hennington, uh, Thomas, and Magic, Magicola, and uh, Shoemate, I think, all went up into the village. And uh, they were going to go to that residence that um, they uh, thought this guy lived at, but a lady came up. They, they got spotted. So they got spooked and they saw another light further down. Now, we'll just take that. We're going to send a message to the village and go fuck with the Marines. Yeah. So, what prior to that happening, they were, I, I think it was Michigan. I could be wrong on that, but the road, one side was the east side and the other side was the Marine Corps side. And, you know, the standing thing is, you, you know, Marines wanted to go knock on a door and they could do a search and look for weapons and anything that would show possible ties with the insurgents. Mm -hmm. So they went into the Army side, figuring, well, this will never get reported to the Marine Corps. It'll get buried in the Army side. So they went into the Army side, went to this house, and confiscated an AK-47. And then the four of them Former went back to the, the Palm Grove and then 
the four went up into the village. Well, the four that went up to the village, they took the AK-47 and they stuck it in a store. And they went up in the village. They, and like I said, they got compromised. So they went to this light that was on. And uh, the individual was a wad. He was a retired, medically retired police officer. He climbed at some time in his career, climbed a, a palm tree and fell, and it shattered his, his leg all up. And he kind of limped. And so the families at night, as you know, a lot of them sleep on their roofs because it's cooler at night. Well, this guy couldn't climb up the stairs very well, so he stayed in his bedroom. Well, the Marines broke into his house. One of Penny Ken, I think, said he picked a lock and they went in the house and he came across him. They yanked him out and told him, Hey, you're coming with us. And so they got down to where the AK 47 was and I uh, picked up the AK 47. At this time, th this is all from Penny Ken. Uh, uh, the the Iraqi Awad realized this ain't looking good for him. And he ends up defecating all over himself and urinating all over himself. Because mm -hmm. he, he's figuring, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. and, um, and of course, they got his hands flexed cup. And so they walked him down to the IED hole. And Pennington said uh, he fought like hell and he ended up tackled him and put flex cuffs on his legs. And he got up, broke those flex cuffs and ran. And they tackled him, drug him back, put another set of flex cuffs on him, and then shot. And then uh, Bacos caught the brass from the AK-47. And um, I think it was Magic Caller shot the gun. In the air. I might be wrong. Could have been Thomas. One of, one of them shot the gun in the air. Mm -hmm. And uh, the AK-47 to make it sound like a gun fight for the uh, QF. It was a QFR quick response yeah, team. The quick yeah. response force. Yeah, would uh, count because they hear gunshots. They count. And of course, Hutchins is on the radio saying, "Hey, we're in gunfight." Blah blah blah. Guys trying to plant an IED. So he's planting all that. And maybe they have this flex cup, and they shoot him. And then um, uh, Hutchins, when we were at the crime scene, told me the guy was gurgling. He was about ready to die. So he put two rounds in his head and put him out of his misery. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you're, not a, you're not a corpsman. Yeah. You know, how do you know this guy is going to die? Mm -hmm. I, I thought this to myself. You know, and it was kind of one of the red, first red flags. Because I thought Marines wouldn't do that normally. They'd probably... You know, obviously he's injured. He's not going to hurt you. They're going to provide first aid or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. my that was my thought. But anyway, so you know, Hutchins or Pennington gave a fantastic statement, and then it was like Donald's, and uh, and then it came down to Magic Call. He uh, right away uh, cop for an attorney, and. Uh, Hutchins, when I interviewed him initially, uh, he terminated the interview. And I can't remember, I, I don't think he asked for an attorney, he just terminated. And so we we drove him back down to that south end of the base where they each had their own hooch with an escort. So they couldn't talk, still at this point. So then, you know, after, 
I think I did like, well, I did like eight, well, six interrogations that day. Okay. I mean, it was like, you know, midnight uh, when we released uh, Hutchins. And um, so I'm sitting there at my desk thinking, what else, what do I need to do tomorrow? You know, I'm trying to put a game plan and you're on fried. And uh, I'm thinking, shit, I forgot to search their personal belongings that they brought back with uh, them of uh, the convoy to Fallujah. But we searched their front area and, and all that, but we did search their backpacks. So, I, you know, it's 12 o'clock at night. So I, I think the authorized searches because I figured they're not going to cooperate. Know that possibility, and I want to have everything ready to go. And so I got kind of the JAG officer's door. I said, Hey, we need to do this. And he says, Well, I don't want to work wait the colonel. Let's why don't you ask a few permissives first? Probably I said, Okay, that's I just got paper with it. They don't. So we went around and everybody did permissives, and we ended up Become, you know, taking some cameras and some uh, stuff they could record on. And uh, so Hutchins is the last guy. And, uh, and he took, he's cooperating and he goes, comes up to his house, hey, is that opportunity still available for me to talk to you? And I said, yeah, but not today. I said, I'm exhausted and, you know, I've been waking up at six in the morning and working till midnight, you know, for, for basically the last, you know, over a month. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll be here at nine o'clock in the morning and I'll pick you up. And if you want to talk to me, we'll talk to you. Here's kind of the funny thing. And so, you know, pick him up. He's there. He wants to talk. And I asked him, are you sure you want to talk to us? So he says, yes, I do. So we uh, get to the base, or get to our office, and Kyle Casey and I are going to do the interrogation. And again, Kyle's a junior guy, so who's doing the typing? Kyle Casey. Kyle and I type about the same pace, about <laughs> 25 words a minute, you know? And uh, not bad. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, so, you know, I clutched, I read him his rights. And, but let me back up. So after I got back from Hutchins the night before on the search, mm -hmm. I called headquarters and I, I briefed them. I said, hey, Hutchins wants to talk to us. And um, I'm a little concerned about, you know, he terminated and, you know, he's not had an opportunity to talk to a lawyer, blah, 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 because we're in pollution. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the JAG officer at headquarters, because it was, you know, night was morning there, said, hey, don't worry about it. That's for the attorneys to argue. That was the advice. <laughs> and, and I had him on speaker, so Derek could hear this too. Because, so, you know, I'm, I'm worried, okay, they're going to come back at me. Someone's going to come back at me. I've been, I've been through a few rodeos myself, you know, over my career. So anyway, um, we picked Hutchins up. He's He's cooperating. So I read him his rights and I said, hey, you know, like, you know, so, you know, why don't you just tell us what happened? And he goes, 
So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you everything that I've been involved with since I've been in Iraq. Oh, boy. And uh, the first, as first started off with, uh, they ended up blowing the wrong place up. They gave the wrong coordinates by accident. They killed the family and stuff. Oh, boy. And then he and Fan, then it went up to him and Fan to go out and find Iraqis and basically flex up them to a chair and put the hood over them and then you know, uh, threaten them to torture and all that. They don't tell where the insurgents are and stuff. And he said he'd stick his hand millimeter in the Iraqis' mouth. And the uh, Iraqis saw the same did that and generally he then he'd shoot you at the mouth, you know, kill you. So they were terrified of that. And he said he'd rattle the teeth. And they'd done that several times. So then we get into the story and, and Kyle started and he like he's 25. He looks at me and he looks at me and says, you type any faster? I said, no, he and I are about the same speed. He goes, do you mind if I type my speed? I said, no, because I type a lot faster. Yeah. And I said, no, if you want to type your own statement, let's do it. So how and I get up, we give the computer, and, and uh, so we go and sit in Derek's office, and we're just chit-chat, you know, and we figured, okay, it's going to be three, four hours. Well, about 10 hours later, and of course, we broke for lunch, and we broke for dinner. And we'd go in there periodic, hey, you want something to drink? You want a smooth break? Whatever, you know, and he'd do that. But uh, he typed up a like, 20, 25 page statement uh, of laying everything out. What, they, what he was involved with, with, uh, you know, the, uh, blowing up the house, the torturing, and then uh, a war situation. And he came clean. So then, you know what? And, you're reading this 2025 page and you just felt oh, God, you know, it's like late at night again. I just I just want to I'm I'm tired. I want to, I just want to tired of him and I'm tired, you know. So I'm reading this and then I realized I wanted to I told him I wanted to do the statement. And then on the way out, I realized it was it was you thinking everything and the whole thing I wanted in the statement wasn't in the statement that he approached me and asked to talk to me and that he didn't want a lawyer and, and that because there was nothing in the statement. So I made him hand write that out and sign it. And then Kyle Casey witnessed it and all that. Or Kelly Garble, I can't remember one of them witnessed it. Because uh, I was, I was, I in the back of my head, I figured this is going to come back and bite us. You know, they're going to argue this, which they did. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, they get shipped off, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they decided, hey, we're going to get them to stateside. We've done our interrogations. And, but we had a lot of follow-up stuff to do. And um, so, of course, when they get stateside, they get attorneys, civilian, and they're talking to the press. And they're, they're saying that we're torturing these Marines and we're abusing them. We starve them to make it confessions out of them. And, you know, typical rhetoric, you know, and uh, and we're in Fallujah and we're reading this, you know, on the internet and stuff, and it's like, that ain't true, you know, and you're talking about yourself, you're getting pissed off because you're getting painted this this terrible person, and uh, so 
Kelly and Kyle had the back offices, and me and Derek were up in the front office. And Kyle and Kelly, you know, because it was brought up that we were portrait. So one of them drew this whip or had something that looked like a whip on this whiteboard, okay. kind of just hanging on. And of course, the defense decided to send someone over uh, and photograph our office spaces. And of course, what was in the office, uh, photographs? This yeah, whip. This whip yeah. And so that made the news that we were, uh, you know, making fun and, and uh, you know, the whip and stuff. And of course, headquarters calls and there, read us the riot act. Derek and I really didn't even know it was there. We probably didn't know. We just said, take that down, you know, you know, you know, but, um, you know young agents. And, uh, and it was venti. You know, it was, we were getting beat up pretty good in the press and yeah. no one was sticking up for us. Yeah. Because this took the, the stand, no comment, because it's under investigation. investigation. Yeah, and the record did the same thing, but yet these defense attorneys were throwing all these allegations out that what we did, what have you. Mm. So, um, eventually, you know, like tours up, and I, I tried to extend because, you know, there was still some language done, and this is my case. Yeah, but I'll back up just too because when I first met Stan and he got that confession basically from Baco, I said, I think this should be your case. I said, my career's to be to an end. You know, at that time, I was 46 or 48. I said, yeah. You're a young agent, you know, this, this is going to help your career. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to talk to Derek to see if. You know, you can be assigned the case, say not, you know, we'll work this together. But because um, Stan had only been on a year, uh, maybe two years. I mean, most of the guys out there were within less than two years. Yeah. Uh, and that was Stan, Brody, who are Diamond, and then um, Kelly Garbo, and Kyle Casey. And then there was a Bruce Knight. I think he'd been on three or four years, but um, he was at TQ. But other than that, all the crim people, there wasn't a lot of experience. But I, I'm thinking, Stan, this would be good for you. you know, and my career, you know, I'm going to ride off in the sunset eventually. And, you know, mm -hmm. be heard from again. Mm -hmm. So I came back to Derek and I brought that, approached that subject with him. And he said, no, headquarters and I want you to work this case. We need you to work this case. All right. Stan was my right hand man uh, for most of this. Um, but anyway, uh, and I don't know if you remember Stan. He had kind of the flow, you know. Yeah, I know Stan. Stan's a good man. Yeah. He was, I think, a South Carolina deputy. Yep. And uh, he, he told me once, he said, hey, we got to take the tree a little bit to see what falls out. And I said, you're right. You know, we, we worked really, really well together. Um, and then I first met him. The first time I ever met him was at uh, uh, at our training. But um, so we ended up eventually coming back stateside, and you know we all went back to our offices. And um, Steve Logan, he got um, CID. He his paperwork was being processed to be hired, but they TAD him to 
JCOR that was trying the case to help run down beats. So I was back less than a week and I flew down to San Diego. The Article 32s were starting. And uh, like I said, I did, and I don't want to take all the credit, but I did most of the interrogations and the, uh, and, you know, the agent sat in with me. So we were, we were a team and it was a good team. Um, but, you know, they never testified in a court martial, most of them. And uh, Baker, you know, wanted me to be the, the go-to guy to, to introduce everything because I had some experience uh, during court martials and stuff. So anyway, uh, Colonel Baker was the prosecutor. And he came out to Fallujah. He was actually uh, at the palace there in the green zone. Uh, Saddam's palace. He was actually working out of there. When this case broke, uh, he got assigned. He was initially just going to be the the you know the initial guy that it was going to get passed off but he ended up with it and uh, i'll never forget what the first time i met him they said we got to protect the institution meaning the brain course <laughs> okay i know where this is going <laughs> at that time but he was very good i mean he is was a chess player you know i mean he he did this to get a reaction here, and then he had a back. He, he, he plotted this thing. He did a fantastic job. He ended up thinking general. But um, anyway, we did the Article 32s. Every, everything went through that. He upheld the Hutchins statement. Uh, we went to trial. Well, first off, there was a bunch of plea deals. Baca did a plea deal for eight years, and Pennington and Shoemate and some others did some for nine, 10, 11 years, something like that. They, they were all starting to roll after the Article 32. And then Thomas was going to do uh, a plea deal, but he went on some show and had an epiphany and changed his mind. And I mean, he was supposed to, like, the day after that show, sign the paperwork for the plea on it. He did, he pulled it back. And so the only ones that went to actual trial was Thomas, Magicala, and Hutchins. And um, again, Magicala and Thomas were Purple Heart recipients from the Battle of Fallujah. So they had some, some cred with the Marine Corps. And um, so their trial, they were guilty, but time served. And, you know, they'd spent almost a year, year and a half in the brig. And so the big trial was Hutchins. And, um, and they all had fancy big time civilian uh, defense attorneys. And uh, one of the other things that I got accused of was I was going to torture the Iraqis. Remember I told you about that? Time the brother had the hood and he was going. And I said, hey, I wanted to. And what I, Baker said, hey, the defense attorneys want to talk to you. I don't, you you know this case better than anybody. I don't have a problem with you being there yourself. And I said, I really don't want to be there by yourself. But what happened, there was two attorneys and some guy taking notes. And they were drilling. And 
And I talked about that incident with the Iraqis and wanting to bring them to Abu Ghraib so that we'd be on our turf and that you know, Marines be, but they turned that around and said, I wanted to torture the Iraqis. That's why I brought them to Abu Ghraib. And then the word got back to Baker and the CO for the JAG Corps about that. And so I'm up there at, you know, after this two and a half hour grilling by these attorneys. And Baker said, did you say that? And I said, no, I didn't say anything close to that. He said, okay. So anyway, the plea deal went through. Um, and I told him what I had said. But anyway, um, so the trial, I had the Hutchins, Magicala, and Thomas trial, all three going at the same time. So I'd be on the stand for three, four hours on each trial. I'd get done with one, and the other trial was holding until I could get out of that trial and walk to the next building and do that trial for three of them. And it was like all in one day, I'm getting hammered, you know, by the defense. And, and uh, anyway, they got, like I said, they got convicted and time served. And then Hutchins got initially awarded 16 years by members um, or not his first was the judge judge only. and um, he got 16 years and then uh, General Mattis lowered that down to 11 and since the two Marines that got time served uh, Thomas and Magicala he uh, on the plea deals that were done, he awarded them time served, um, which was disappointing because you know we got when we were in Iraq, we got IED a convoy, and that's another story. Uh, we exhumed the body. One of the I think we were the second to ever exhume a body. Uh, I don't know if it was the army or somebody else. Um, exhumed the body but we had a bunch of paperwork we had to do uh, and we exhumed the body but first we wanted to so we did a convoy out to uh awad's brother and i wanted them to take us to the graveside so we could get the coordinates for the search warrant you know that we had to do a search warrant all that so we wanted to get the gps coordinates where exactly the body was at and so um we went out to Awad's place, and um, so I'm talking to him, explaining what we want to do, using an interpreter. And one of the Marines came in. Hey, that guy you've been wanting to interview, the, you know, three or four times we've been out here, where the AK-47 was taken from, the, the father. Uh, he's the one who ended up turning the rifle, the AK-47, over to the Sheikh, who turned it over to the Marines. I wanted to get a statement from him on what happened. So, again, I already explained to the Wad family, and it was the, the oldest brother and then the youngest brother to the victim were going to go and take us to the grave site. And I told him, hey, I need, hold your, you know, hold, I've got to go down there and interview this guy. I'll be back in about 30 minutes. So, you know, the Marines and I, we went down there, uh, interviewed this guy, uh, and then we came back. Right. And I'm going to say right now it was terrible offset on my part and the roots. Because we left them up there 
nobody really on them. And uh, so what the deal was, we were going to follow them to the gravesite. They were going to lead us in their car to the gravesite, our convoy. Now keep in mind, they put me in a hump B, which kicked the Marine out of that hump B who had to go on a troop transport. He was one of three in the back of his troop, troop transport. So I, uh, like I said, did the interview and then we go. And on the way to the cemetery, we get hit with an IED. So you're, you're thinking, and it's the troop transport where this kid's in. And at that time, on this uh, convoy, we had um, Kyle Casey, Stan Garland, um, myself, and um, two CID guys, Steve Alder and a, uh, Perez, Stan Perez. They're all. So my main thing was, after the ID, was my guy's okay. I got out of my armory because it was the third vehicle, and I was like the fifth or sixth vehicle. And Casey was right me and Dan, I think, was back. Me and uh, Steve and the other guy was behind. But Casey was one in front of me, and you know, when the troop transporter went over, he got hit with an IED, and luckily, whoever planted it planted, I think they were 180 Russian 180s, they determined, and they planted them wrong, so they imploded downward instead of across. And uh, it just blew the shit out of there. The Humvee, they had this brand new ice chest. And this is fun. And the Marines were so pissed off that their ice chest was shredded. I mean, it was shredded from the shrap metal and whatever. And But nobody in the, the uh, troop transport got hurt. But the first thoughts were, you know, did that guy take a bullet for me? Because I kicked him up. You know, he got kicked out of that Humvee that I was in. And then my troops, my guys were okay. And then, uh, you know, we called EOD up. EOD came up. It took forever for them to see Mike come out there. And then, so once they arrived, we backtracked and kind of did a perimeter so no one could tell them. Well, EOD uh, did their thing. And so I had an A4 fully automatic. And, uh, assigned to me and the marina was with, like i said some of them we've been out so many times we start you know communicating start trusting me and so forth but anyway um so we're staying in prison we go, can i hold your gun and i'll let you hold my gun so we swap guns and we're doing this river. and um so one other little funny thing we get back to Abu Ghraib, and you know one of those big tent, field tents, they put the five of us in that, that tent to sleep. Well, in the middle of the night, of course, I get on the sat phone, and I call Jack and tell him, hey, you've been ID'd, we're all okay. You know, we don't call their spouses, let them know we're okay. And uh, in case it made the news or something. Uh, anyway, in the middle of the night, I get cramps in both my legs. And I mean, there are freaking bowling balls in my, in my hamstrings. 
and both legs. And I'm in such pain. I jump on the bed and I grab that center pole that's holding the tent up. And I'm shaking that thing. And I almost knocked the tent up. I was in so much pain, you know. But, uh, and of course, all the guys were telling me, lay back down, shut up. You know? I was all hyped up. Uh, but anyway, tryout occurred. And then um, Hutchinson's trial, they reduced his. He goes off to Leavenworth. I said, he says, well, he wasn't married. He gets married while he's in the break, and she gets pregnant. Now, how she gets pregnant, I don't know. Other than, obviously, his attorney let them have time together and... And that was, I think, a ploy from the defense. Hey, this guy's going to have his kid, blah, blah, blah. You know, get the pity stuff going. But anyway, he goes off, ends up going to Leavenworth, and um, he appeals that statement that I took, took from him. And it goes equivalent to the Supreme Court for the military, and they rule in his favor. And of course, this is six, seven years down the road. So then the Marines got to decide do we prosecute or just like go away? Well, they just prosecute. So a whole new trial team and um, the whole new trials, uh, trial for Pennington or Hutchins, whole new defense team for him. Uh, I think he kept his Marine Corps uh, defense attorney, but uh, another civilian board. And uh, so we go to trial, and uh, they uh, convicted him again, but time served. Um, he got BCD the first time, and they lowered it to uh, not uh, our DD the first time, and then he got a, a BCD. So, yeah, so he got. How many years did he get served? Time served. I I want to say in all it was close to six or seven years on the eleven. Um, but here's the funny thing: when he was out on appeal, mm -hmm. he was brought back into the Marine Corps, and they put him in charge of the range. <laughs> well done. Yeah, which was a you know crazy. And a couple of the other guys that had plea deals, they let them stay in the Marine Corps. And one of them, she made, ended up going back to Iraq. You know, it's crazy, but, you know, hey, it was a good case. I had a great team. Um, I, I, I will say this. I was a little disappointed with NCIS at the trial. There was no flag at the trial when we were testifying. No one from headquarters, no one from the field office. Hmm. And I, I think that was. I was disappointed, you know, because, you know, there was some, again, there was mudslinging and, you know, no one defended us or, or anything during the trial, but, you know, it all worked out. I mean, um, I got a lot of respect for Kelly Garble. A lot of respect for Kyle Casey, who ended up going to the FBI a few years, I think a year or two after the left Fallujah. Fallujah. Mm -hmm. Stan Garland, uh, Steve Wolf, uh, and the many other guys that participated in this. It, it, 
was great teamwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't have done it without them. Uh, Derek let me vent on him many, many times. Uh, and then one of the funny stories with him is I, I got headquarters calling me asking for reports. Like I said, I'd be out in the field for three, four days and come back and focus on getting that stuff. But they wanted it right now. And Bert Nakasoni, yep. God bless his heart, good man. They called me up and hey, when are you going to get this done? When you get... So I went to Derek's house. You got to keep these rat bastards <laughs> off my back so I can get the stuff done. I can't, I'm answering the phone every 30 minutes. They want to know this. They want to know that. I, I can't get my work done. Yeah. And Derek goes, and I'm pretty loud. Yeah, sure. And, and, and Derek, the light clicked on it. Wait. I'm your supervisor. You can't talk to me like that. And then he starts, he starts to snap back. And I said, time out. You're not going to do this in front of my troops. Yeah. You're not going to do that, you know, because, you know, they got to respect me. And so we walked outside and we started laughing at each other. I mean, <laughs> Derek was the greatest boss, I mean, yeah. that I had. I couldn't ask for a better man. Yeah. Uh, Eric Kennedy. Than, than well, you want to, you want to hear something funny, Jim? So I, I talked to uh, Bert Nakasoni and I said, is there anything that, you know, lessons learned about Hamdania that uh, he goes, yeah, get off the fields back. <laughs> 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 he, he said, yeah, those guys did great work. And he goes, and we were bu- bugging the hell out of them. And I know they were getting frustrated with us. Yeah. And he owes me uh, two bottles of beer, two bottles, by the way. Two, two bottles of beer. I'll let him know that next time I talk. Yeah, not maybe back yet. And I, I know Bert <laughs> Uh, he was the uh, forensic guy down in San Diego. Yep, uh, that's when I first met him. Uh, back in the 90s, you know. Yep, yep. 80, and I, 89, I 90. I yeah. one of my boxes where we had a, a case of a wood guy and a guy killed his wife, put him in a hitter, strangled over the coat hanger, put her in a Samsonite suitcase, and then threw over the bridge. Oh, we man. never have found the body. Body's never been found. Yeah. I confess to it. But Bert flew up from San Diego and he and I are doing stuff with sheets and stuff. <laughs> I got a well, you know, that. One of the famous cases you guys had up there in the Northwest, I think it was in Bremerton, was the barracks uh, killing where they yeah. start off the Drizzle. second deck and end up the first first deck. Yeah, I think that was Driscoll. Yeah, huge I, case. I, you in Arizona. I worked on that case in Uva, Arizona. Is that um, one of the roommates who got on a bus that night uh, went home and he lived in um, northern Arizona. Uh, I can't think of the name. Prescott. I live in Prescott right now, so I wonder if he's still here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt calls me up and says, hey, you got to go on a little trip. It's got to be done. you got to leave right now. And so I jump in my G-car and it's like four hours there mm-hmm. and it starts snowing. Oh, boy. And of course, we don't get Arizona, we don't have anything. <laughs> at Prescott, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and I did like this six or seven hour interview because I walked every minute of the day from the time you got up to the time you got on the bus. I mean, it, it was handwritten statement. It was, but it was like six, seven hours. Because we didn't know if he was a suspect or, you know, just lucky. Yeah, sure. And, uh, so I, yeah, Driscoll case. I I got my hands dirty on that. Uh, I, I, this has been a great career. I would recommend it. I, I in fact I've tried to recruit people to apply because it's 
the best. I I miss the people. Yeah. I don't miss the politics. <laughs> uh, and I think toward the end of my career, politics it was getting more political or anything because mm-hmm. of the show. You know, everybody expects everything to happen like the show. And, mm-hmm. uh, well, let me ask you this, Jim. So, you know, as a seasoned agent and, and what you're doing today, um, you know, a lot of young agents listen to the podcast and they're always commenting on what some of the uh, older agents say. Is there anything that you can pass on uh, as good advice to those young agents in the field today? Well, I, I'm going to pass this on to the young and the old. Okay. Because um, during my career, I trained 26 agents. Uh, I was an FTA for 26 agents in five years. And a few times, the new guys taught the old guy tricks that you didn't think of. And my philosophy was, there's always been two heads are better than no one. You know, and my main job when I was an FTA was Keep them in the lane, but let them think. You know, they got to think because everybody does their interviews different. That as long as you get to the end play and you get the results and it's legal and it's tidy, you know, and it's buttoned up, that's right. all it counts. Because, you know, you think differently than I do and you might do something different than I do, but as long as we get there, that was my philosophy. And the older agents need to listen to the younger agents, you know. And say, yeah, that would work, but we can't do that for whatever reasons. Or, hey, let's try it. You know, let's see if it works. And a couple of times I did that. It worked. It was like, hey, I'm going to put that in my toolbox yeah. for a possibility. But, um, you know, at one time I said I had, I trained 2% of all of this agents at one time because uh, I did 26 and those, you know, 900 of us. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and a lot of them are up in upper management, uh, Cliff Everton. And, oh, great, great guy. Cliff is a great guy. Yes, he, he is. And you know, you know, you know, right away who was who your shining stars are going to be. And mm-hmm. He he was uh, a shiny star. And then another guy. In fact, I just talked with him yesterday. Was uh, Matt Clement. Uh, oh yeah, Matt's good people. Uh, he and I uh, have stayed friends, uh, and I've been gone missed. 11 years now, 10 years now. And, uh, you know, so my advice to the old, the new guys, listen to the old guys, but think for yourself and um, uh, always be a team member and always be considerate to your other agents. You know, uh, you know they got things going on in their life too. And uh, just be, you know, make friends because they last forever. Well, that was a great discussion with Jim Conley about what I would consider the two most critical, one of the two most critical cases that we had during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation During Freedom. The Hamdaniya case was a case where it was done very well from the ground all the way to headquarters. Uh, the cooperation between both to find the truth was extremely well done, I think, uh, well executed. And, and I'd also like to comment on the technique of combat crime scenes uh, during the war. It was something that when we went through the high-risk operations training program, it was uh, uh, something that was stressed because we knew that when we were there on the ground in Iraq or Afghanistan, that if we went out to a crime scene that we needed to keep 
safety for, uh, was the primary reason we went to a, um, basically a, an untested theory of could a crime scene be examined in a 20-minute time period while we have an overwatch of Marines watching over us. And eventually we're going to have to get off the X because people are watching us do our job and the Marines guarding us. And you can imagine it's like the Indians and the old Westerns start gathering around to attack a smaller force. Uh, so we never wanted anything like that to happen. So we were taught very well at the high-risk operations training program at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center about conducting crime scenes and doing them quickly, getting the amount of information. And these have been tested by not only our agency, but also by other agencies that were working in theater. Um, remember, I think it needs to be stressed that this crime scene was several weeks old by the time that NCIS agents arrived um, at the village uh, to do their work. And that is one thing that when you read newspaper articles about how can you do a crime scene in 20 minutes and expect to find the truth uh, in this type of case. And I think it needs, once again, to be, needs to be stressed that this was a several weeks old crime scene when they arrived on scene. There were no dead bodies laying there. There were no, there was, wasn't, wasn't much evidence to provide. It was really kind of getting the story from the Marines that were there and understanding what happened and then interviewing witnesses who provided key information. Some of those witnesses were villagers. Some of those witnesses were Marines. And eventually it was a Navy corpsman who basically rolled over and provided truthfully what happened on that day. Jim Conley did a great job on the show today. I appreciate his time and his efforts to come on the show uh, and talk about the Hopalina case, along with the rest of his crew. Anyway, I appreciate Jim coming on the show today, and I appreciate you all listening uh, and staying with us. Uh, these shows can run on a little bit long uh, sometimes, but you know what? I believe that we let the interviewee talk, and we learn a lot more like that without me stepping in and going, hey, you know, I can't, let's just shut it down here. No, I, wanted to, I want to make sure that every person who talks about his career, it's, it's critical to the history of the organization in CIS. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week with another show. Hey, thanks for listening to the NCIS Reports from the Field podcast. Really enjoyed bringing this show to you. If you like what you heard today, please go to your favorite podcast service. Do me a favor, like, subscribe, and give me the five-star rating. Give me a five-star rating helps me keep the show going, and I want to keep this show moving along. I want the, I want the History Project to do what I intended to do, tell the history of the organization one career at a time. So if you can do that, that'd be great. I appreciate you listening. Listen, if you want to continue the conversation, and I'd love to do that, send me an email at ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week with another interesting guest who will tell their story. Until then, stay safe, everybody.